0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding.
1: One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process.
0: The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial.
2: As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going.
0: You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case.
1: Whatever you think about, you create.
2: Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation. Uh, we're going to do a little bit different of a format because I just got out of trial, uh, and Delisi Friday here from my office is actually going to interview me, uh, kind of s- turning the tables a little bit, uh, because uh, I had so much fun in trial and I wanted to share it with you, but I like question and answer rather than just you all hearing me ramble on for 45 minutes to an hour. So, Delisi, take it away.
2: Well, welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. <laughs> um, thanks for doing this. We've actually had several of our fans have emailed us before asking for this to happen. So I'm excited I get to be a part of it. Um, but how are you doing?
0: I am on cloud nine. I had the, in some ways, the best of all possible worlds because I got to go in and try a case, which was fun. Uh, it was so good to be back in there. But then the case resolved during trial. And I can't say the amount, but I can say that when I met with my client to sign off on the settlement documents, she was smiling and hugging me and hugging me and hugging me, uh, which helped me with some of the ambivalent feelings I always get. Uh, so, you know, we got the certainty of a settlement, a settlement that made my client happy, but we also got the fun of trying the case. So I'm in a great place. I cannot wait to get back in there and do yeah. it again.
2: Uh, well, And I could tell, I was fortunate because I got to be there, but um, let's kind of start off by talking a little bit about it. So this was your first in-person trial in a long time?
0: Yeah, since February of 2020, my first in-person trial. We did a Zoom arbitration, which is very different than a jury trial. Uh, And it was fun to do the Zoom arbitration because I hadn't done anything else, but the, the jury trial is just so much more dynamic and doing it in person rather than zoom. I mean, I know I pushed zoom trials because I wanted to have something during the pandemic, but I don't know. It's the combination of being back, not realizing how much you love something until you lost it for a while. And just, I think part of it, just the, the feeling that after almost two years, this is something normal. Mm -hmm. It's come back to me.
2: Yeah. Well, I could tell as someone who has seen you in trial since I've been here and someone who was there to witness this there, you walked into the courtroom and you've always had confidence or at least you show that you have confidence. (laughs) Um, But when you walked in this time, there was like this calm confidence about you. So I know that doesn't just happen. What, what did you do to prepare and have that?
0: I've been working and if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me talk about mindset, I think. I've really, really been working on my mindset uh, and working on myself. And part of my ability to have joy in trial is the separation of my value as a person and my worth as a lawyer from my trial results. It's it's weird as that sounds. Uh, And so when I'm trying the case... First of all, I'm telling myself I'm going to have fun. These are good people who are taking time out of their lives to come here. I trust them to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. This is a good judge. I trust her to rule on the law. I might not agree with every ruling, but I trust that she's going to follow the law and do the right things. And if the jury gets it wrong, that's on them, not on me. Uh, And so I really try to focus on that mindset. So I'm just focused on having fun and doing what I'm doing uh, and then letting the wins and losses take care of themselves. Uh, It's uh, not easy and it's really hard cuz you don't want to say that I don't care whether I want to lose cuz that's not true. Uh I I do care about my client a lot. Uh part of me cares about the hundreds of thousands we had <laughs> invested in the case yeah. uh and you know when you have you know a multiple seven figure offer on the table before you start trial and you your client turned it down on your advice. I mean there is a little bit of pressure there but I just let it go. I just Told myself, well, if it's going badly. The offer will probably still be there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I just through the work I've I've done, I just really just went in there with I'm just going to come here and I'm going to have fun. I have a great story. I'm going to tell the story, and I'm going to trust the jury to do the right thing.
2: I think it came across too. You could tell in I, I know it sounds weird, but you could tell even in the way you were walking and your body language. It it all showed. Um, but this was a little bit different because this was our first time going back to trial in person in a while, and there were still some things that were different about it. So tell us about how this was a little different than trials 2019.
0: Yeah, so there were still COVID restrictions. I mean, COVID, the pandemic's still going on. It's getting a lot better, um, especially in Bear County where we are. You know, we're in the, the low risk or the, the mild risk. It's mm-hmm. not low risk. We're in the mild risks uh, category by the five – Five stages we have in this county but there still work COVID restrictions so one thing is we did jury selection in a much bigger courtroom it's a courtroom usually used uh, we call it the presiding courtroom usually Bexar County has this weird system where you're not assigned to one judge So when you have a hearing everybody shows up in one courtroom and then you get assigned out to judges for hearings well that's the courtroom we use for jury selection uh which was good because we could put 45 people in there and have the appropriate spacing uh It's bad because there are some big columns in the courtroom and there's nowhere where we could stand for jury selection where we could see more than about 60, 65% of the jurors. Uh, The other thing is the jurors all had to wear masks and then the court reporter was sitting pretty far away from them. So I had to do jury selection in a way I've never done it before because we had the panel 45 and then I had to think of, okay, when I ask things, I'm going to have to move different places and I'm also going to have spotters. And I'm going to have to start off by telling the jury, hey, if you if you have your hand up and I don't see you, please, I introduce my spotters, you know, Sonia Rodriguez is here, Alex Dominguez and Lisi Friday are there. They say, hey, Alex, hey, Elisey, hey, hey, Sonia, Michael didn't see me, uh, and call out because it's important, you're important and what you have to say is important. Uh, and I had to make sure that I moved, you know, so that I, every time I had a question I had to address it at each point, to each Basically, it's like I had three different panels because I had to be in one part where the column would block everything to my right. One part where in the middle where it blocks to my right and to my left. And then one part on the right. And where they're all on my left. And when I looked at that, you know, it would have been easy to freak out about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I told myself is this is my advantage because the defense has the same issue that I have. And I'm more creative than there. And so my thought is instead of freaking out about, oh, my gosh, I can't do this the way I've always done it. I thought, well, this is an advantage because I'm a creative lawyer and I'll figure out a way to do this and I don't know if they will or not. But what I didn't like, uh, but you just roll with it, is in jury selection I like to uh, talk to the group and get the group talking to each other. Uh, but be- you couldn't really hear people uh, during yeah. when we were questioning the, the panel of 45 so we can ask the questions and have them raise their hand. And the way they did it is the judge put it up. So we did what they call general board iron, which is you ask questions to the 45 and they could raise their hand. You could try to talk to them some, but the court reporter would complain she didn't hear it. It would be hard for me to hear it. I didn't have to wear a mask, but they did. And so, except for one huge issue, where I wanted to get someone talking because it was going to help me, um, I just had them raise their hands to identify things, which was really weird. I've never done it that way before. And then we talked to them each individually.
2: It worked out really well, though, doing the hand-raising. And I'm curious, because you had to walk from one side of the room to the other. Did walking kind of help your energy levels?
0: Ah, you know, I'm always walking anyway when I do uh, jury selection, just because you want to at first I just kind of paced around, want to make eye contact people. After working with Sergeant Lamott, I always want to get my body where I'm keeping the entire group engaged and so it's not just a conversation between me and one juror, but between us and that jury. and we're all we're all part of it. I'm not blocking anyone out of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm always moving anyway. Uh, so, no, I don't think that so much helped. Uh, honestly, I think we would have had, we couldn't do group formation. I mean, yeah. so for, like, identifying people we might want to strike, looking for our good people or our bad people, this was probably a little better because we actually got to talk to every single person, and the judge didn't give time limits, and, you know, we got to spend a full day doing jury selection, which in South Texas is a rare thing. I mean, yeah, I've often had, like, 30 minutes or 45 minutes. So I liked that. I did not, you know... Again, I was, my attitude was, it's the same for both sides, you know, I'm going to go with it, but I did miss the the group formation, uh, and, you know, I was doing a Sardi Lamont method or inclusive boardire, dire, uh, and was trying, you know, asking people, you know, do you want to be on the jury? I'm going to ask a question, see if you want to be on the jury, is that all right with you? At the end, I ask asked someone if they wanted to. And we had quite a few that didn't want to be on the jury, but mm-hmm. quite a few that didn't. I think we would have had a higher hit rate of people that wanted to if we had formed a... They already felt like they were a part of a group.
2: Yeah. You uh, took jury selection a, a little bit of a different route than I've seen you do in the past. So tell me a little bit about your approach to jury selection this time.
0: Well, I was trying to do two different things, and I don't know if that's normally a good idea or not. I mean, I was not able to do the full group formation that I like to try to do. Uh, the other thing I like to do when I can talk to the group and they can hear each other And we can still do some of it because the audience can still hear when we did the individual questioning. But what I like to do is when I have a problem in the case, to see if any of the jurors will save me or solve that problem. And and I'll give you an example. I've tried a lot of cases where you have a truck crash, but there's not a lot of property damage. And so I'll ask two questions. First, like, hey, you know, anyone here in themselves, they know anyone that's been in
3: a crash, cars
0: are all smashed up. Like how did anyone survive? And then someone walks away and there's like nothing wrong with it, no symptoms. You get some hands up.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, how about the other way, where you know you look at the crash and like man, it hardly even looks like those cars crashed. I don't hardly see any damage to them, but someone got hurt. And somehow, some way, by the grace of God, every time I've done that, there have been a few hands go up, and at least one has had back surgery and still had problems afterwards. I mean, it's just, it's just providence. I don't think it's just because that's what happens in the real world. Uh, bumpers are really good at absorbing transmitting force to the occupant and saving property damage claims for the insurance companies uh, the way they make them. Uh, So I could not do that as much here. Now I still had one huge issue in that my uh, client's story had grown over time. Mm -hmm. And so this was a case where uh, she was stopping at a store. Uh, The store was not set up in a very safe way. They had her sit down in one seat to fill out an application for a leasing program. And they had like a shelf right behind her had uh, heavy boxes that were elevated. The shelf was too short, so that the edges edges of the boxes were actually hanging over. The employee wasn't trained properly. The employee goes to check a price on a box, just no real reason. He was thinking about buying the chair, wanted to see what it cost, and he knocks the big box on top of her. Um, she originally told the ER uh, and the EMTs uh, the, from the uh, paramedics that it was a 29 pound box and that hit her in the neck and shoulders, uh, which was accurate. We think we know it was a 29 pound, twenty-nine pound box, and and then it hit her head, neck, and shoulders. And then it was a forty-pound box, and it was a fifty-pound box. And by the time a year and a half later, you know, she told somebody it was a fifty-pound box. that fell ten feet, it hit her <laughs> in the head, neck, shoulders, back, knocked her to the floor, where she was blacked out and seeing stars. So, you know, I don't want to say my client's a liar because right. uh, I don't think she's intentionally lying. I really don't. Uh, but at the same time, we had to deal with that because uh, that story definitely grew over time, and my trial position was what she said first, what the defense said happened, was true, uh, and that she could get all these injuries that way, and we had an explanation for all of them. So, you know, we don't need to do that. So, But I had to come up with some kind of explanation, so I told a personal story that when I was, you know, in college and drunk and stupid, I ended up in a place, bad neighborhood I shouldn't have been in, and uh, I got jumped, beaten, and bottles broken on me. It was bad. Uh, And that night when I told the police what I remembered happening, it was a very sparse story because I just didn't remember much. But I kept reliving it over and over in my mind. The more I thought about it, the more details I thought I remembered. And so a week later, I had a very detailed story. A month later, it was like a movie in my mind. And I could see all kinds of details that I didn't remember back at the beginning. And I bet you, if you had a found a surveillance camera, what happened and compare that to my movie in my mind, they would be very different. Not that I'm a liar. It's just that my mind is filling in the gaps. And so I think with my client, she, when she found out she had a brain injury or head injury, she must have hit me in the head and she starts believing it in her head. And it's just one of those things that, so I started that story and asked jurors, you know, do you, anyone else have any experiences that way? They, oh yeah. You know, people try to fill in the gaps. That's how human, you know, so I had that one woman is great. Well, that's just psychology. That's the way the human mind works. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're lying. And so that was uh, super important because that was, like, defense's biggest thing is they're trying to make this lady out to be a liar.
2: And when she responded and said that, someone else responded too and just confirmed what she said. It was it was a nice dialogue, and it, that was fun to watch. And
0: it got shut down pretty quick because of the court reporters. I can't hear what anyone's saying. you know. Yeah. And so, But it was super important, so at least I got that from the group. But if we had the normal group where people could hear each other, we were in a smaller courtroom with better acoustics. I mean, I could have done that on on more of those issues, but at least I got it on that one big issue.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, circling back to Vordire a little bit, um, tell us a little bit more about that. We always talk about, and Joe Free talked about it, being comfortable with your number. And I thought it was so interesting in Vordire you um, asked some different questions. So, did you ask for a number in
3: Vordire?
0: Well, what I did, I mentioned, I wanted to mention the $30 million number. That was going to be my ask in the case. And I put a lot of thought into why 30, I thought $30 million was fair in that case. And I wanted to get out there early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that I got an objection to it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did too.
0: <laughs> because it actually, you know, brought it even more. Uh, the vote. But I just asked, you know, like, look, I can't ask you to commit to a number right now because you haven't heard any evidence. And I'm going to tell you, there's a number I'm going to ask for at the end of this trial, and it's going to be big. And right now it's going to sound crazy because you haven't heard the evidence yet. But I think when you have the evidence, uh, you know, you'll understand why I'm asking for this number. But what I want to ask you is $30 million is the number I'm going to ask you for. Is there anyone here that that number is just so high they could never consider? It? That no matter what the facts were, they could never consider $30 million. Now, I'm not asking that because I think a judge is going to strike somebody because they have they don't, they don't can't say that they would for sure get $30 million in a case. Because Under Texas law, I mean, someone could argue with me, but I I don't think I'm going to get many strikes there. What I wanted to do was plant my anchor. I want to anchor that number because then they're going to be looking at the rest of the trial measuring against that number. Mm -hmm. And we know it worked because after it resolved yesterday, we got to go talk to the jurors. And uh, the defense lawyer started talking to him before I got out there. So he's asking, what did you all think of that number? That was way too high. That was way too high. Maybe 10 or 15 million. <laughs> you know, and most of them at that time were between 5 and 10. Uh, that point in the trial when we when we settled, uh, I don't know that they would have stayed there after my client testified yeah. and, and some other things. But uh, I totally saw that that anchoring effect worked, that yes, the, they thought the number I asked for was way too high. But because they were measuring things against that 30 million, the numbers they were coming up with were much higher than they would have been had we started off. At a more "quote unquote" reasonable number.
2: Yeah. So you mentioned um, I don't know if they would have thought that after talking with the client or hearing from the client. Let's talk a little bit about the client. Um, you mentioned that she had injury to her head. So tell us a little bit about her injuries.
0: Yeah. So the the she had some bad injuries. So she had uh, a neck injury that resulted in a multi level fusion where they had to do a surgery and take out discs and fuse multiple bones in her neck together. She had a a rip of the rotator cuff on the right shoulder where it hit the shoulder and had to have a rotator cuff repair surgery in the shoulder, Uh, but still had a lot of pain. She had some back pain, uh, and then she had, we believe she had a mild traumatic brain injury. I, I still believe that with all my heart, that there was a big fight about it. And not all the doctors diagnosed it too. There's psychiatrists that said no, it was PTSD, neuropsychiatrists, psychologists, and neuropsychiatrists said no, it doesn't qualify for PTSD. It's more, it's an MTPI, an automatic brain injury. And so there was a lot of uh, fighting about what the diagnosis was. But to me, I wasn't focused on the diagnosis as much as I was focused on what has this done to her? Mm-hmm. So what was her life before? What did, what was her life afterwards? What had they taken from her? And really telling the jury that, you know, it's not one any one thing it's what it's, it's everything it's everything she's gone through and, yeah. and what this has done to her uh, she she was the charge nurse, not just any nurse but the nurse in charge of the of the floor at uh, the women's oncology unit at one of the, the top hospitals here in San Antonio before and nurses have such a high approval rating uh, that we really made being a nurse her identity of being a nurse not just the joy of helping people not. It's more than money. It's not just the joy of helping people, but it's the uh, camaraderie with the other nurses and healthcare workers. It's the, the drinks after work, where you've worked a 12, 13-hour shift, and then you're going to go and invent about the crazy patients you had to deal with.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, all of that, and that, that was such a part of her identity. And one, it was a huge part of the case, but two, also, we wanted to reinforce over and over again. Our mantra was charge nurse on the women's oncology floor at Methodist hospital. Yeah. We said it over and over again because it, that is inconsistent with a woman that's going to make up injuries. Uh, and that is inconsistent with someone that's, that's not credible and is just out to get money for nothing.
2: You made the decision not to have her in the courtroom. Is that part of the reasoning behind it? Or can you tell us a little bit about your mindset into why you didn't want her there?
0: Well, by my, my default now, and, you know, I read this and I've heard this from David Ball for years and maybe decades uh, now that default should be not to have your client in the courtroom for the whole trial. I was always scared to do it. Uh, years ago, I had a case where I had to do it because my client was, I had a client that was undocumented and she was just so scared because the bailiff had a badge. And even <laughs> though I I even introduced her to the bailiff before trial, but she was so freaked out to me in the courtroom and thought she was going to get picked up and deported anytime any time that we just made a deal with her that you'll just be there for your direct and you'll be there for uh, your, your testimony after closing. And it, it worked and we got a nice verdict. And I've been doing it more and more ever since. And so the problem is when your client's there, they're looking at your client the whole time. Yeah. And so what facial expressions does she be? How is she reacting to things? Okay, you know, she says she can only sit down for so long before it hurts. Then they'll start timing. Instead of paying any attention to the testimony, they're timing how long it's been since she's fidgeted or since she's gotten up. And she yeah. may be just sitting there, like, sucking it up, trying to be a hero. And then they're making that, oh, well, she's not that really that hurt. If she's not there, then they're looking at the defendant's center. And someone else. And so that's to me is important. The other thing is, you know, she had not just the you know, she had some real psychological problems, we believe, due to the the injury. Now some of some of it was preexisting. She had a pre existing diagnosis of anxiety and depression that, that was controlled by medication. Uh but she'd had you know she had gone through life. She was almost sixty when this happened. Uh, she had a lot of bad things happen to her that she'd had to overcome. Had a lot of physical degeneration in her spine and her shoulder. She had an atrophied brain, a smaller brain than normal because of the aging process. We had a lot of challenges uh, in the case uh, because of that, because that gave the defense a lot of excuses to point to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of her psychological issues, that there were days when she was a wonderful, charming person when you're dealing with her, and there were days when she was just really hard and unpredictable, and I didn't know what she would do in that Yeah. Uh, when she heard some, some testimony facial expressions may be outbursts, things that could have really
3: hurt us.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delise Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show.
2: I don't want to spoil it, and we'll talk about it at the end because the case did settle. But You had some jurors who talked to you about that and asked you why she was in the courtroom. So can you tell us a little about that?
0: Well, the defense lawyer asked me, do you all think it was weird that she was in the courtroom? And they all said, yes, we did. Uh, And then they asked me. And and it's really when I felt that uh, I had developed a relationship with trust with the the jury. And we did did think that was different. We didn't know why. And they asked me, why didn't you have her in the courtroom? And I said, well, you know, a couple things. One, I didn't know how she was going to react to things. I didn't want her, you know, I was worried she'd have a meltdown or something. And she goes, yeah, that would be really, the funny thing is what I told him about that. Yeah, that would have really been unfair to Big Lots had you done that. Maybe it would have made her look worse and you were really a gentleman for not doing that. And then I said, the other thing is I really care about her. And I said, one thing that they've not taken away from her is hope. And so when her doctors talk to her, they are always saying, well, you can try this, you can try that. Her doctors have never told her, look, it's been more than two and a half years, three years now. You're as good as you're gonna get. You're you're stuck. you're gonna be your brain's gonna be like this, your pain's gonna be like this for the rest of your life. Uh, we don't wanna take that hope away from her, so we don't want people saying that with her in the courtroom. And they're like, Oh, that makes sense. Uh and I and I think it's because I developed in the way I did jury selection, in the way I presented the whole case, kind of just by general
2: story. You always talk about story.
0: Story and presence. I think I I think I came in as someone that was relaxed, confident, honest. Was not overstating? Was not understating? You know, when I just said, you know, Barbara said all these different things. And I don't think she was lying, but I also don't think they were right true. And so this is what, like she said, it hit her in the head. I can't yeah. prove that to you. But I can prove to you that you can get a brain injury with a 29-pound box hitting you in the neck. And we're going to prove that to you. Uh, so it doesn't matter
3: whether it hit her in the head or not.
0: Uh, and I think that credibility went through where I don't think it was a problem. Yeah. Uh, I had really was thinking about, and I, and I should have planned this out way before trial. That's, that's on me. Uh, but, uh, the Friday after court, I was talking to Sonia, my partner, and I tried the case with, uh, what if we just don't call her at all?
2: I was going to ask you about that. So when you have a client with a brain injury, what is the discussion that you're having? And what are the factors when you're trying to decide,
3: do you call her?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the only reason to really call her was fear that they would punish us for not calling her, uh, And that, and I mean, she could be charming and lovable, and so, and I think she would have been on the stand. I mean, we we were working with her, and she she was actually in a pretty good place during most of the trial when we were talking to her. Uh, I think part of it is relieved that it's finally happening, because she had to wait Mm -hmm. for so long, and it got bumped multiple times because of COVID, but one of three things is going to happen if we put her on the stand. One is she's going to, they're going to be cross-examining her on her prior, on her pre-existing problems, and on her inconsistent statements, and she's going to react badly, lose credibility, and turn the jury on. So that's one extreme. That would be really bad for us. The other one is she's going to do great on the stand, and that's going to be totally inconsistent with somebody with a brain injury. Yeah. She's going to do too great. So, you know, we need to get her, and you can't coach this. I mean, you don't ever want to tell someone to fake it or have it up where they look like they've got some impairment, but not enough to not, but not look like they're exaggerating or not doing it. It's going to turn the jury off. It's really risky. Um, you know, if I, I'm really thinking, and I'd want to, I don't know how you focus group this because it's not the same as being there in trial. Yeah. But, you know, just in voir dire, bringing it up. Have the neuropsychologist testify it is not good for her to testify. I think I would, I think I had the credibility of the jurors. Like, look, the defense has pointed out, and we agree. She has given, her memory's not accurate. She's given inconsistent statements. So because of that, why
3: put her up? Yeah.
0: We have all these other people. You're hearing from her coworkers, you're hearing from her daughter, you're hearing from her sister, you're hearing from her now now ex- boyfriend because they've they tried to make it, but this emotional effects and the of the injury has been such that she can't maintain that kind of relationship anymore. uh You've heard the evidence of the changes in her life. Why would I put her on the stand if I know she's not going to be an accurate witness? yeah, uh I, I think I'd, but I, but i don't know, I was just really hesitant to say my client's not I would lie, a reliable source of truth. Uh, but at the same time, I think I may have earned the credibility to do that. Uh, so I was I was struggling with it still. Uh, I didn't have to make the final decision. And I was actually going to leave the final decision to her because it's so important. Uh, I think one of the reasons she was so happy and hugging me when we settled the case was not just the amount of money, but the relief that she wasn't going to have to go on the stand. I do not think yeah. she had any... I think she was dreading it, was very apprehensive. Uh, she was fine not being in the courtroom. I think she really was... You have someone that has anxiety issues. You have someone that has, uh, it wasn't, I think the neuropsychologist was right. It wasn't full on PTSD, but definitely some stress disorder related to the trauma because uh, there is a lesser. Uh, and then you said the mild cognitive disorder, which is a process thing as well. I think that it would have been emotionally painful for her to be
2: testifying. Well, and I think even the people who don't have that kind of injury are already nervous about going into the courtroom anyway. Yeah. So I think that certainly adds to the level of anxiety of trying to put someone on the stand and how comfortable do they feel.
0: Yeah, um, trials suck for clients. Let's be honest here. I mean, yeah, we, it does. They they are they're fun for lawyers, but we need to keep in mind it is you are in a foreign world. You have no control. You just have to sit there while someone else is speaking on your behalf. It is a scary, unpleasant anxiety inducing experience for a client
3: mm-hmm. yeah
2: um, you called company employees as your first two witnesses. why'd I, you do that?
0: Well, one it was fun uh, you no, know, we had deposed them, and we could have played deposition clips. but before I want to talk about harms and losses takings what you know what the, the damages are, I want to show that it, we're entitled to them in this case, they actually stipulated to liability. But the judge denied their summary judgment on gross negligence or punitive damages, so we accepted their stipulation because that meant the jury. There's no chance they could have said no negligence and bored us out. But we still got to put in all our of our evidence because we were uh, trying to prove our gross negligence case. Mm-hmm. So it was the best of both worlds. Uh, they were fighting like hell to try to keep to limit what kind of evidence we can put on what happened. But we won. We had a great judge who followed the law and read our briefing and. Uh so I wanted to do that. I really wanted to paint a picture of what happened and how dangerous the store was. And there's just nothing like live testimony because I was able to, you know, use some of the stuff I used, learned through the trial lawyers college, serious fence, and uh, you know, call the I called the the little low eight dollar an hour employee who caused the harm first, super nice and polite to him. But I was able to set the scene, so I'm like, you know, so there's basically there's one part of the courtroom. I'm like, okay, right here, this is the shelf. And I grabbed the box and you had what? this is a box that weighs 29 pounds. It was sitting about this high and a hold up about the right high and then, you know, put it down. Now, right in front of the shelf, you know, you had a chair and then you had a register here. And then at the end of the counter with the register, you had a, a laptop computer. Now that was actually chained. So it couldn't be taken anywhere else. And on this shelf, we have the box. The shelf is actually short, so the box is actually hanging over. And there's the where the jury would, the jury, the jury was in the audience, where the audience would normally sit. But where the jury, the, at the edge of the jury box, there's the rail, whatever they call it. I was able to actually put the box on the rail and show how far over. And he agreed, he agreed with my distances. So I set up the scene, and you get this anticipation that you're directing a woman to sit here. You've got this big, heavy box that's already leaning over behind her. Uh, so that was really good. The other thing I did is, you know, they kept on and said, We accept responsibility for what he did. But they denied the company, mm-hmm. and so I was really able to set up the company negligence through the employee. And I'm like, you know, I said, "Now you've accepted responsibility. You've accepted that. You've admitted that you were negligent doing this." Yes, I did. And thank you. I admire you for doing that. That that was that's admirable. Now, do you think it's fair to just blame you, or do you think Big Lots also shares some blame on this? Because I've never thought about that. I didn't know that was an option. I'm like, okay, well, let us let me ask you some questions. The decision to have this heavy box on this shelf, now your decision wasn't Big Lots. I wasn't Lots. I can say it was a product for our Big Lots. Uh, okay, now the decision to use a shelf that was too short, where it was hanging over, was that you or Big Lots? Big Lots. The decision to have two layers of boxes instead of just one so that the box hung over the shelf, was that you or was that Big Lots? Big Lots. Decision to put chairs right in the zone of danger where if anyone knocks one of these boxes over, it's going to fall and hit the person in the chair. Was that you or Big Lots? Big Lots. Decision to put the computer here and have this the place to fill out, right in the zone of danger, to fill out applications. Was that you or Big Lots? Big Lots. Decision to chain the computer there so no one can steal it, where this is the only place that the person can fill out the application. They don't have the option of moving somewhere where they're not in the zone of danger. Was that you or Big Lots? Big Lots. And, you know, it just really painted that picture. And the safety rules. There was no safety rule that prohibited you from doing this, right? Yeah. Who wrote those rules? Here are big locks. And the training. No one ever told you not to do this, right? Did you set the training or was it was a big lock? So it was really a short, but I, I mean, you, did you I guess you weren't there for that. But. I
2: wasn't there for that, but I i love the different types of questions you're asking over and over to set the scene.
0: Yeah. And it's all, you won't see the visuals. Well, we'll we have the transcript from the first day of trial, which is my opening and my Cross examinations of the big loss employees. And so, you know, we'll put that on the show notes. And if anyone wants to read it, it's a it's a fun read.
2: Yeah, we can definitely share that. Um, you also used a lot of photos of the client before the injury. Tell us about that and how it helped you tell her story.
0: Yeah, it, it what I really want to do is I want to bring to life to know what someone lost, you don't need to know what they had. So, I really wanted to bring to life the rich, joyful life that she had so they could understand that. And it also undercuts the defense's position that this woman was already messed up. Mm-hmm. She had all these degenerative problems, she had these emotional problems. What well, we got, we really worked with her and her friends and family to find tons of pictures of her doing things uh, with some of the people that were going to testify. We had her ex boyfriend, we had her sister. Uh, we were, were going to call her daughter, a coworker, and I like think one other friend, and so we had a lot of pictures of them doing things together. And she was smiling in all of them. big smiles, uh, and so you know it really showed. And so you know it was just pretty mundane. Like, here you guys, here at this. What is this?" Well, this was actually taken at my, you know, my at relative's funeral, but we all got together, we had see each other, and she's actually got a smile on her face and a really neat. She's got a really neat hat. Oh yeah, she loved big hats, and she's just one of these larger. Here she is. Where's this? Well, this was when we went out to a bar, like a bar and grill thing. And someone else was having a birthday party. And she's the kind of person. She, like, started talking to them. And she's, like, has her arm around her. And smile the person whose birthday. To see, who's, who is that? We have no idea. That's just some <laughs> random person. She was just that kind of person. And so yeah. they saw all those smiles, all that happened. So it really put a picture of this joyful life. And then when we put our neuropsychologist up, I just said it was one simple exhibit. It was just a picture of her. Just neutral face, not, not like frowning, not making a face, but just not smiling. And then it had like arrows that started like yellow and kind of shaded to red. And it was like a cycle rounder. So it said, uh, chronic pain. And then it said lack of sleep and it said brain injury. And then it said psychological, symptoms, or psychological effects or something and had her explain that the, you know chronic pain makes it where you can't sleep not not sleeping causes cognitive problems also makes it harder makes you experience pain more makes it harder to handle things you combine that with a brain injury you can't process things as well and you combine that that all creates and exacerbates the emotional symptoms the increased depression the increased anxiety and everything else that she has which then again makes you feel the pain more it is that this vicious cycle mm-hmm. but talking to the jurors afterwards that that photograph they said of all the smiles and stuff before compared to just the neutral effect afterward was striking. And it really hit home with them. Uh, so I think the more we can create those visuals, and they're not like photos that are anything special. They're like a lot more like her sitting at a table with four other people smiling and her standing up with a bunch of other nurses after work all smiling. But it's just the that visual contrast. And also when the before and after witnesses are telling the stories about what her life was like before. The photograph one shows that they're not making stuff off. that's real. Uh, but two, it helps them. It's a lot easier. They, they, people get nervous when they don't understand. But if you're like, look at this picture. What's this picture here? Where were you guys? Tell me about that. Then they're back in the living room after their vacation telling their friends about their, you know, yeah, look here. We went to New Orleans and this is what we did. And here's a picture of us doing it. It's a totally different experience for the witness. Uh, and so I'm a big believer in getting as many photos as we can.
2: And your visual that you were talking about, um, for anyone who's listening, if you just email podcast at triallawyernation dot com, I will share that photo with you. We obviously don't want to put it on the website.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the the exhibit was powerful, and I encourage everyone to get it. I, I don't have my client's permission to put her photograph online, uh, so I'm not going to do that. But I do encourage. It was simple. we all our graphic artists made it. Uh, it was. We took an idea from Rodney Jew and made it our own, but he made it really quickly. It just took like ten minutes to make the thing, and it was just. Uh, but it really, it really hit home with the jurors.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm glad they told you that too, because now you know that image was doing exactly what you were hoping it would do.
0: Exactly what Rodney Jew told, you told mm-hmm. me it would do. He he told me the contrast of all the happy, active photos before with just a neutral blah sparse stuff yeah. afterwards really does make uh, make a difference, and it really did.
3: Good.
2: So, what was it like to settle during trial? Do you feel differently, or what, tell me what your feelings are from that?
0: It was an emotional roller coaster. Uh, I was loving the trial; I was having so much fun. I was also cognizant that we had numbers that were creating risk to Barbara, a little less so to me. I, I, I'm going to confess; I did occasionally think about. I think I had right four hundred thousand dollars in expenses and. You know, I'm not at a point of life where that would be a painless thing to lose. Uh, <laughs> and we would survive. Luckily, God has blessed this firm, uh, and you know, only part of it was borrowed. The rest was already spent. and You know, we'd be able to pay back what we borrowed. It would not be a, a, we. It, it was survivable. It wasn't going to like break me and make it where I couldn't buy my kids Christmas presents or anything. But it's still enough to think about. Yeah. But that wasn't the bigger thing. Was her? Because I'll make it up on the next case. She's only got one. And, you know, there were some significant offers going in there, and the offers were going up as the trial went on. So we had, you know, a certain amount offered before trial, the week before it went up, you know, after the second day of trial, they went up. After that Friday, after the third day of trial, they went up, and then they went up enough that Saturday to get it done. Uh, And so my initial feeling was, blah. It's (laughs) like, I'll be real honest, I was a little teary-eyed. and I always am when I settle a big case. I Just a big part of me was wondering, you know, did I do the right thing? Should I have held out for more? Should I just trusted the jury and gotten a verdict? Uh, I was really, and then I was having so much fun trial, and I was losing that. And I was thinking, you know, yes, this is a case that could a jury could go hug us and love us and give less than what the settlement offer is, but it also is a case where I could go get that eight figure verdict that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was having really mixed feelings about it. I was, uh, I mean, everyone else was like, congratulations, great <laughs> job. But I'm like, I don't know. Uh, but then I met with, it was an unusual thing cause they actually, uh, got the settlement documents ready that day, the release, which I've never had happen before. And so I told her, Hey, let me go meet with you. Uh, Texas were allowed to advance money to clients. She goes, hey, you know, can I have a loan to get me through? I said, yeah, I'll, you know, so I wrote her a big check, uh, Get her through, let her pay some debts off, and kind of take some pressure off her, mm-hmm. and got her to sign the release documents. And I told her earlier in the week, I said, Look, if we settle this case, I don't want you to say, eh, I'll settle the case. I want you to say, I am so happy that I want to hug you. I said, That's, 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 if you give me a big hug, I know I've done my job right. And so, you know, I went to go meet her at the, the lobby of the hotel where she was staying. And she comes up to me, and she's all smiles, and she hugs me, and she hugs me again, and she signs it, and she hugs me again. She says, I've never seen so many zeros I. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: when she talked about the number, and so then I felt really good. Yeah, and I felt really good until we talked to the jurors afterwards, and then they mentioned, you know, that they were most of them were between five and ten million dollars at the time, and I'm not going to reveal what the settlement was because uh, it's confidential, but. I had a little bit of seller's reports at that point. <laughs> uh, but I also have to remember that that was at that, that pinpoint in time and trial shit, despite yet. Um, you know, they had brought up all the inconsistencies yet. Uh, but also, I hadn't gotten across them and their witnesses yet. And I think yeah. they're experts. And I, I do think I add value when I show that the defense brings deception and is trying to pull the jury through their so-called, I call them paid opinion witnesses, they call them experts, but I don't think they're experts in anything other than lying to jurors in court uh, but that's a whole nother
3: story for another day uh
0: so i don't know I'm, i mean i'm the client's happy you know the referring lawyer's happy so i'm okay with it you know i'm not i'm not unhappy about it mm-hmm. but the fun part was trying the case the settlement's secondary you know?
2: yeah this was your first trial with sonia so yeah. I'm curious because you and Mallory have tried cases together and you have this, I don't know, you have this flow. She can read your mind. You have this post-it thing that you guys do. So you've been trying cases together for a while, but this was your first time working with Sonia. So tell me about that. How was that different? What did you learn?
0: Okay. I love Sonia. Uh, She's a great lawyer and it, we will get to be, a great trial team. And I don't think there was anything bad about being the trial team, but it was more stressful to try a case with someone that didn't already know what I wanted, Mm -hmm. to try a case with somebody where we had to communicate more about being on the same page on things. Uh, And nothing big, it's little things. Uh, And next to the trial still went great, Uh, but it it did require just more over-communication about it. This is what I want to do. This is what our plan is. This is what we want to do with this witness. Uh, and it worked very well, but it, it took more effort. Whereas Mallory and I, when you scroll through it, the other thing is like how I want my exhibits labeled, how I want, what kind of order I want things in, how I want my trial notebook organized, you know, with Mallory and her team, I don't have to think about it. It's just yeah. done for me because we've tried lots of cases over nine years together. Uh, where with Sonya and I, I had to go back and make revisions and stuff like that because she did it the way that she's always done it. And I wanted the way I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it but, I, but it was a joyful experience. It was a good bonding experience for Sonya and I. We were already close, but I think we're closer now because we've had that experience. But it did not make me realize that I'm hopefully, you know, as this firm has grown, I want to be trying cases with a number of different lawyers in the firm. And, you know, Mallory has spoiled me so much, I'm going to have to go back and really, like I have another one, hopefully it's going to go to trial on November 1st, that's my next one set, and I'm going to try it with Laura Porter, another brilliant lawyer in our office. But I'm going to have lunch with her today to start talking about, okay, the details of what I, what I, what I need so that we don't have as much last-minute stuff. But I am going to have to over-communicate with people that haven't done it with me because it's not fair to have psychic abilities as a job requirement.
2: Yes. And to make that come full circle, I think that also applies to the people in your office, too, because we have employees here in the office who haven't been to trial yet with you or with Sonia and we had to over-communicate with them as well about what it is that you each want. So for anyone who's listening and has new employees in your office, don't forget that they haven't been through this with you yet. And it takes some time for them to know what it is that you want on your exhibits or how you want things set up in your notebooks.
0: Yeah, and, and how and scheduling and the, the fact that the trial set. To start October 4th does not mean you're going to put an expert on October 4th and you can't tell all your experts to be available October 4th. That didn't happen in this trial. It's (laughs) it's happened in other cases where apparently, go didn't know. Mm -hmm. She just told everyone to be available that day. We're only picking a jury that day. And we, you know, so you have to go, you know, plan out who's going to go where and when. And uh, and I think she had to kind of see some of the stuff I do in the courtroom to, to realize how it worked. But then again, you know, her work with the before and after witnesses. She's much better at it. She spends more time at it than I am. I have a little bit of I may have a little ADHD. I don't know. I, I now that I have a son that's diagnosed and I'm seeing the the pattern, I'm like, maybe I do have a little bit of that. Uh because I just like she will work with someone and work with someone, work with them and, and they just were these charming people. They told these beautiful stories and had all those photos and I'm kinda of like, Okay, we're like this 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 <laughs> this is the question, tell the truth, let's go. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, she's a lot she was a lot better at that than I am. She, you know really worked on creating visuals with uh, one of our experts, um, and they were really nice and, and pretty. Now, there's some disadvantages there, too, because I think it looked a little bit more like we were feeding the expert what to say mm-hmm. when we had visuals that had too much detail. Uh, and uh, I think it's something we can improve on. Uh, but, you know, I think her seeing me and the way I did, I put on our the other experts I put on, uh, I think she learned some there. But I also learned something like I, there's some things she did that I thought were just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I think I learned from her as well. So I don't want to ever say that I know everything and, you know, I don't have things because she has, Sonia has a lot of things that she does really well. And like I said, the, the discovering the story of this case, which she did, and then telling that through the uh, lay witnesses, uh, and discovering the liability story of the case, too, and, and putting that on through our safety expert,
3: I thought she did a brilliant job.
2: Enjoying the episode?
1: Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcasts for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go.
2: You had a chance to talk with the jurors after settlement, um, and you mentioned some of their feedback. But was there anything else that the jurors said that you took away from this?
0: Uh, you know, they weren't positive. She had a brain injury, which was a little scary for me because we had put on our neuroradiologist and showed the spot on the brain where the uh, exon loss was. They would heard from the neuropsychologist. I mean, they just said they wanted to hear from the defense, too, which is fair. They were keeping an open mind. But I thought they'd be a lot more convinced at that point. But they also bought my uh, argument that it didn't matter if she had one or not, she was still messed up, and they said it really changed her life, regardless of what the exact cause, whether it was all the neck injury and the psychological part, or whether it was because of brain injury, they still saw it as a multiple seven figure case. Uh, so I think that was one, you know, let's see. They liked our before and after witnesses. Uh, they thought, you know, I was worried that one of them had exaggerated a little bit, but they, they seemed to, they caught it, but they, they,
3: they seem to forgive it. Uh, they like the the visuals. Um, I'm trying to think, what else? You know, I, I don't know. It's so hard.
0: I, I have so much trouble talking to jurors after a trial. <laughs> I'm not good at it. Uh, the other the other person, the, the defense lawyer asked them a lot more questions. But I thought the way he asked them, they were pointed enough where he was trying to get certain answers, and mm-hmm. not necessarily the way I would have done it, which would be more without. I, if I really wanted to bring jurors, I would have someone do it without any of the lawyers there. And, yeah. Uh,
2: I, I was actually sad I wasn't there when uh, you guys finished and the jurors walked out because that's always my favorite part of jury trial when you guys are done and I get to stop everyone in the hallway and say, wait, give me your feedback because you learned so much from them.
0: Yeah, and they all stayed to talk to us, which is unusual. And I like that. And that yeah. and to me, that meant we were engaged. Uh, although one of them did tell the defense lawyer that stayed afterwards that he had to tell him that he looked like Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I don't know if that would have helped, and which is funny because I had told Sonia the same thing the week
2: before. He looked like someone. I I he was googling like Martin Martin. after, and I was like, "Who does he look like?" But if he had
0: stripped down to his underwear, you would have seen him look like the market. i a he, and, and, he can and, and fairly, he was he was a really good lawyer. I was uh, I was impressed with him. He was a gentleman. He fought hard. with a gentleman, but he was also very effective. Advocate. And it, to me, it's more fun to try a case against a good lawyer. I want to win against a good lawyer. I don't want to win some sobriety.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you that because. Um, you know, as the daughter of a defense lawyer, I respect a defense lawyer who can um, get in front of a jury panel and not come across as slimy. He, yeah. did, a, he did a really good job um, of that. And I was curious, you know, does it feel better or do you feel like you take away more when defense counsel is someone who puts up a good fight?
0: You know, I want to beat the champ. <laughs> That's <what laughs> I do. You know, I, I want to go against the best and, and beat them Uh and, and yes, I am going to be detached from the result and just enjoying. It. That's how you beat them is by focusing on the task in front of you and not worrying about the result where you're trying it. But yeah, I want, I don't, at one point, I don't care about who the defense lawyer is because I'm telling my story.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But yes, I I do like going against good lawyers. I think iron sharpens iron. It makes you better. Uh, and like I said, he was good. I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, I like that. He was doing it well. And it's, it's fun to see. It's fun to, it's fun to fight with someone good.
2: Well, and I also think, from a different perspective, that it's probably more engaging for the jurors, too. Yeah. So, And
0: I also, I always do worry about the David and Goliath thing. Because if we have someone that sucks on their side, and then we're putting up all these beautiful exhibits and bringing all these experts, and we're so smooth, and they're stumbling, there may be a bit of a sympathy factor that we could create. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to be cognizant of that. But, like I said, a, a case like this, they're not going to hire a bad lawyer. So it was...
3: yeah. It was it was
0: fun. Like I said, it was fun to go against somebody, you know. And then they had their appellate counsel, and they were buying all these stupid bench briefs and stuff like that. So, you know, to me, it was fun.
2: Good. Is there anything else um, that you want to share that you took away from the experience being back in court after having a little bit of time off, if you will?
0: Just how much I loved it, and, and how much I encourage everybody just to get back in there if we can. Now, you know, we don't have control over. There's counties still in here in Texas that aren't having trials. Uh, but get in there and try some cases. I mean, if, even if you want to settle the case, they'll usually offer you more when you're in there, if it's a big enough case. Now, there are some cases where the cost of going to trial eats up any increased offer. And once you're in there, you've got to you got to go to trial and, and do it. But, you know, you're not going to die. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Even if you get the red ribbon, you get sitting in place, you don't get any money, then you're not going to die. No one's going to remember it. Six months later, no one remembers the cases you lose. Everyone remembers the case you went. And so I really encourage people to just go in there and have fun with it. The more you just, you're there and you're joyful and you're, it just, it rubs off on everybody else uh, and rubs off on the jury. And just mm-hmm. go in there with an attitude of, thank God that I have the blessing to be able to do this. It's this so cool. Yeah. I, just, I get this opportunity and uh, I cannot
2: well, if this were a video, people could see it in your eyes right now. <laughs> um, so, speaking about something that you really love and are passionate about, how do you feel about weekend homework? <laughs>
0: yes. You know, I never ask, listeners, I never ask you to, I'm never going to, I will never ask you for money. Uh, I will never ask you to do, I'm never going to do a Patreon or a subscription or anything like that. I've I'm, I'm not put on ads. Uh, I don't think we put on ads. No, no. Nope.
2: Nope. I okay. say no to ads every month.
0: But I am going to ask you to do one thing. So I want you to make a 10-year-old boy smile. Uh, my son, Gavin, last night was actually, he had not done his homework. He had a three-day weekend and he had not done his homework. And he was just pitching a fit and was crying and yelling and kind of having a meltdown. And my wife couldn't handle it. And so I took him to the room. And I'm pretty good about calming him down. I said, look, Gavin, I'll make you a deal. Why don't we start a petition to end weekend homework? so we're going to go try to change this, but until you change it, you got to do it. And he calmed down. Really, Dad? You'll do that for me? Yes. And so I went to change.org, and we I, I had him dictate it to me. We have a three-sentence, you know, why weekend homework is unfair and teachers shouldn't give it. I don't know whether it will make any difference in the world about whether any kid gets weekend homework, but it will make a 10-year-old boy feel very happy <laughs> because he's all excited about this petition now. So if you will go... Uh, we have the link in our show notes. So if mm-hmm. you go to the show notes and click on the change.org petition to end weekend homework, uh, and you sign Gavin Cowan's petition to end weekend homework, you will make me and you will make my 10 year old son very happy. And so please do so.
2: And I can't think of a better group of people to ask than those who are professionally trained to persuade <laughs> to sign <laughs> the petition. Yeah. So,
0: so please exit. It's, it's not a huge deal, but it would, uh it would make me happy if y'all would come and sign my son's petition. Uh and it would make it would just make his day if we can get, you know, hundreds of signatures on there.
2: Well, I will share it in the show notes so everyone can sign. Um, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for uh turning the tables and letting me ask the Michael Cowan <laughs> questions the Michael on the Cowan, show.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Delecia. It's been a joy to be on this journey together for these four years on this uh creating this podcast and I'm looking forward to many more.
2: Me too. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Law Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Law Nation, sign up for our mailing list at TrialLawNation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
3: Each
1: year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.